Hello and welcome to the Unheard weekly podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where my guests take us through stories which they think are important but underreported in the broader media. And we also discuss our heroes and villains of the week. I am delighted uh, to be joined by Julie Bindle, who is a longtime activist, feminist campaigner, journalist and author, and Trevor Phillips, writer, broadcaster and former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Welcome to both of you. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. We're going to crack straight on, Julie, with your underreported story. Well, this is a story from Vancouver, Canada, and it's only been reported in one very small uh, media news outlet there about a transgender woman, so male to female, who was taking a case out against, I think, 16 separate beauticians um, at the Human Rights uh, Court, backed by um, the Human Rights Tribunal, because she said that when she went along for a Brazilian wax... Do you want to just explain to our listeners what a Brazilian is? Well, it's something to do with (laughs) removing the scraggy hairs that might pop out from a skimpy bikini. I wouldn't know this personally, (laughs) but this is what people tell me. You've had to say of it. Not wearing a a skimpy bikini, I have to say. I'll I'll give you the details later, Julie. I've I've got photographs of me. Thank God for that. We need you, Trevor. Anyway, so she had gone along, called up and said that she was a transgender woman and do they have a problem with that to which of course they replied no but not realizing that she was had a fully intact set of male genitalia right and when the uh, beautician said no i'm not qualified to do this and i mean clearly women have the right not to touch uh, male genitalia uh, in their workplace if they are simply mandated to do brazilian wax on female genitalia Um, But apparently in Vancouver, this is against the law because if uh, a man says that his genitalia is female, under the law it is female. So he went to 16 separate beauticians and when they all turned him down, for simple reasons that they weren't qualified to do this, it's a different procedure. Strangely enough, listeners, we do have different shaped genitalia. Um, Then he took a case out and and took them to the Human Rights Tribunal, which earlier this year uh, she dropped. But then... Uh, is pursuing separate financial uh, arrangements with each single beautician. In other words, these working-class women who are self-employed are having to pay this person sizable chunks of money because they refuse to touch male genitalia. Now, there is something really wrong about this, and the reason I raise it isn't to actually bang on about the transgender ideology and whether or not self-identification is fair or reasonable. Not at all. It's about how pockets of the men's rights movement, so men's rights activists that we think of as those that don superhero suits and jump from buildings um, in parachutes if they can't have access to their children. Fathers for justice. Yeah, families need fathers, etc. We used to think of them as those, as the men who say women attack men far more than men attack women, all of this nonsense. And they weren't supported by the Liberals and they weren't supported by good leftists because they know that feminists are right when we talk about our sex-based oppression and about how we are the ones, overwhelmingly, disproportionately, that suffer rape and domestic violence and that men are the perpetrators. So what these new men's rights activists are doing, in my view, is that they are latching on to the transgender extreme ideology and are saying, well, I can say that I'm a woman and therefore I have those privileges and I can use it to attack other women. 
And who are these new men's rights activists that you, you're talking about? Who is this growing kind of group of people? Well, they're, they're individual men who realise that they can jump on the gravy t- train. And for definite, when we look at Karen White, the rapist who was mm. also a prolific child abuser, who ended up uh, in a prison, on a, a female prison, uh, on a wing with very vulnerable women, because women are, of course, in prison... Um, usually have suffered some kind of male violence. It's highly irregular to find someone who hasn't in a women's prison. And and Karen White was sexually assaulting women. They were terrified of Karen White. And all of the liberal press, let alone the tabloid press, published things such as um, her erect penis was mm. visible above her tights. Now, as one feminist activist said in Australia to me when I was there recently working, the only time that her penis should be used in a sentence is if a feminist vigilante has castrated that penis and is holding it up as a trophy. So when you ask me who these men's rights activists are, they're not a conspiracy, they're not a group that know each other and that talk about this. They are men who are opportunist and because some transgender ideology has gone so far as to say a penis is is a female body part if it's on a trans woman, they can do this. So do you think they're sort of making mischief? They're kind of seeing opportunities and coming in to sort of stir it all up? To punish women, to gain financially, such as this person in Vancouver that we're talking about now, definitely to gain access to women's prisons because women's prisons are not quite so grotesque as men's. And and actually, I have to say this, and it's right from the heart, and I've been saying this forever. These... The ideological extremists, the trans-Taliban, as I call them, are not in any way representative of the transgender population. Not at all. I know many, many transgender people because they contact me when they see what's happened to me being no-platformed and shut down for for not following the woke line on this. And they are lovely people who want to get on with their lives without oppression, without discrimination and without being called a freak in the street. And 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 that's why women support them. And who have a hard, hard time, Extremely you know, in terms hard. of the the statistics on self-harm, suicide rates, abuse, oppression, the horrible name-calling, all of that is, is very, very real. I mean, Trevor, how do we... The debate on both sides has just mm. gone nuclear. I mean, it's, it's, it's one area which, I mean, I as a, as a pretty fearless broadcaster, this is the one I actually feel quite frightened about sort of talking about because it's so polarised. Is there any way back for the debate or is it, are we just now in this kind of extreme territory where both sides are sort of digging in? Well, I think um, it's an interesting way of framing it. You see, I, I, I'm not really uh, a believer that there's sort of two sides here. Uh, I think there's right and there's wrong. And um, I'm very clear, for example, if you want to enter a women's changing room, you must leave your wedding tackle at the door. That's it. There's no, it's not uncomplicated to me. There's not a balance of rights here. It's either You either are or you aren't, number one. Number two, I think what Julie's saying is correct. This, uh, what, some of what's happening here is a provocation. I mean, these people, it's, it's a straightforward provocation. And my view about this in politics and you know I'm notorious I'm notoriously diplomatic and tactful everybody <laughs> knows that about me um, my my view when you're confronted with provocation is essentially to say to those people Foxtrot Oscar uh-huh. either you 
Oh, you Trevor, know. you're all tough talk today, aren't you? No, your your I'm wedding I'm... tackle <laughs> and your... Oh, it's all you're going on about shock chop. What's going on? No, I'm, I'm, I'm very clear about it because I think... What, the reason I, I, I feel angry about it is that these people are um, using some very difficult... some very difficult issues uh, around which there are people who genuinely suffer mm. to essentially pursue their own individual interests because... To me, the key point about all of this is that we worry about identity questions not in order to allow everybody to do whatever they want anywhere. It is to make sure that groups of people are not unjustifiably disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. And what all of this does is essentially make, bring all of that into disrepute and undermine that wider fight. I, th yes. I mean, look, to to put the, the, the counter view, I suppose... I mean, the thing that is is very difficult about this is that these there are these terrible examples, the the, the Karen uh, White example, for example. But there, I, I slight my worry is: are we in danger of just appearing to be in this huge moral panic? I mean, Trevor, you have not used ladies' toilets, obviously. Julie and I have. I mean, I don't feel that freaked out if there's a male cleaner. In coming into the toilet, neither I do I. I don't. It's I don't, a complete I, red herring. The toilets thing is a complete red herring. The toilets thing, which is mainly an argument that's raging in the US, was started by parents, usually mothers, of small children mm. um, who were who, of girls yeah. who were scared about sexual predators. Um, being able to use the self-identification law and policy, which mm. many people think has passed here already, which it hasn't, and. Bearing in mind that there are so-called transgender women, many of them who have intact genitalia, have never had hormones or surgery, and are sporting full beards. Now, if you can walk into a female toilet where there are small children or vulnerable women with beards and a penis, then what does that mean in terms of us saying to any man, to Trevor or whoever, and just saying... You can't be in here. But do we do we honestly think that's happening? Oh, it's happened. It's happened. Really? Yes. <laughs> but but look look. Let me just say again. The thing about the toilets is a red herring. Yeah. What this is about is a state of play where we will not have any sex based rights anymore at all. Stonewall, the so called gay rights organisation that should be ashamed of itself in my view, has campaigned to get rid of sex-based exemptions. Now what that means is that all of the hard-won gains that feminists have been fighting for for decades, which says, look, because of women's oppression and sexual violence, which is endemic, it's a pandemic, we know that this isn't just a few weirdos who prey upon, you know, nuns. This is everywhere. Well, yeah, I mean, two women are still killed every week by exactly. their partners or ex-partners. And that, that's without even talking about rape and child sexual abuse and all the rest of it. That because of the pandemic of sexual violence committed by men to women, that we have got some exemptions, such as working in a refuge, staying in a refuge, which women built up, by the way. We opened these refuges and worked in them for free. And also um, certain, uh, you know, women-only spaces that might be necessary, such as changing rooms and sports facilities and like. Not because we're fainting Victorian ladies who can't bear to see a penis. It's like you say, it doesn't matter if you see a male cleaner. If I, I go to lots of mixed toilets, I never even turn a hair. It's what it symbolises, which is an end to sex based rights in the same way as people of colour rightly have, because they have fought for this, um, have got certain rights 
to say that speech is racist and that they have been treated in a particular way because of their ethnicity or, or skin colour. Trevor, you're keen to come uh, in. Well, I, I agree with everything that Julie's just said, but I, I think this particular this particular case, for me, presents a different issue, which is, if I can put it this way, is actually, in my view, even more profound. Because what this tactic that's being used is about is not about highlighting an issue. It's about bullying. What it's essentially saying to the the women in these parlours is, if you do not agree with our point of view about what a man is and what a woman is, then we will get you in court, we'll shut down your businesses right. and so on. So the point here is not, for me, is, is not the sort of the background argument. It is that the tactic is being used to force people mm-hmm. to agree with a point of view. Mm-hmm. And that is something that's happening in all sorts of ways. And this it's the fault of the Liberals. But, but, that, but that's, I mean, that's something that your former organisation, I mean, we've just had the whole situation of the cake in Northern Ireland. Correct. And that's exactly, you know, that's about, you know, uh, testing the law and using every legal sort of lever available. I mean, I suppose where I would like to know, and we, we, are, we all have to move on to the mm. to other stories on this, is I, I just feel... You know, as a as a proud feminist, as somebody who has campaigned, you know, we talked about this earlier a lot about you know sex based discrimination. I also want to feel like I'm a compassionate human mm. being, and as a woman, you know, I want to be able to embrace trans women, and I do embrace trans. I just feel like can't, and I, this is all very kumbaya, but why has it got so toxic? Why because, can't we have a conversation right, which recognises, which recognises the, the the challenges and the discrimination that trans people and trans women particularly feel, but also recognises that many women want to have a discussion about privacy, safety and dignity and, and women and spaces mm-hmm. as well. Why are the two things, why can't the two Be- things happen together? Because, they have Because, not. Aishi, you will not recognise that there are people in this world who are not as nice as you <laughs> and who <laughs> will see... Aisha wants to be nice. She mm. wants to hear every point of view. And what they will do is that they will use that ruthlessly, not playing by your rules, but playing by their, playing by their own rules. And they will essentially use the fact that you want to be open in order to impose that, their point of view on other people. No, but, but Aisha, what you've said is fundamentally incorrect that this debate has become toxic from all sides. It's like the domestic violence police officer saying it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. It is not. Let me tell you how many times I have desperately tried to talk, to debate, to open up my views and my home and public fora to trans people who were then bullied out of even talking to me. People have seen what's happened to me since 2004 and they've become very, very scared. This is anything but a level playing field. They are bullies and the loud ones are bullies and the vocal ones are bullies, not the regular transgender community. And what's actually happened is now some feminists are fighting back and they're saying, we've had enough. And it's a little bit like when you take domestic violence, and I am using that analogy very consciously. Yeah, no, and when, and you, it's when a you've very taken stark. it for 18 years, I've actually had this for 14 years, this bullying. And I'm lucky because I'm privileged and so they can't wreck my career. But my God, they've tried. But what actually has happened is a lot of feminists have looked at this and said, we've had enough. And they've come out of their complacency and their cowardice and they've started to fight back. And it's a bit like the woman who finally hits back at her abusive husband and she's the one who ends up in court. So with respect, when you say toxicity on both sides, why can't we all get on? We have tried. These are bullies. And the liberals are listening to them and they're selling us down the river.
Well, you certainly did. <laughs> so, well, we've right. certainly. Well, that, that is all out there. I mean, I look. I I suppose I am nice in many ways, but that's what we've Me always. Too. That's what we've always sought to do, and I think that, that that's the horrible thing. That's the that's a liberal tension, yes. isn't it? When you're trying to be a liberal progressive person, you are endemically the slight Forrest Gump in the room because <laughs> you're kind of trying to do the right thing, but knowing that people. Whether it's race, whether it's you know, we'll always try and take the piss to some degree. But I suppose I make a plea to just—I have to believe in trying to be nice and trying. Oh, we've to get tried. Everything. Okay, right. we've uh, tried. I don't know. I, I think you should, Aisha. But that's why people like—I don't know about Julie. But I—I I longer d- discovered that was my role in public life. That's why you have people like me. You have brutes like me. So to go, who will go into a room and get into this fight so that. The values and the behaviours that you, you were dis- never a brute. We worked together. You were never a brute. You were nothing <laughs> you, but you charming and polite. <laughs> you, you, you never heard what people were saying about me outside <laughs> that room. But the, my point is that I completely agree with you, and I would love public life to be conducted in the way that you do it, yes. and you would like to do it. But in order to do that, sometimes you have to send out some. You have to get into a fight. Yeah, no, I, I, to, I, I to defend I, yeah, that. I accept. I that. agree. Right. Uh, Trevor, you're underreported story now. Yeah, it's a story which I, I'm rather disappointed that um, hasn't had more play because I think it's an extremely important one. Um, one of the problems that uh, the Ministry of Defence faces is that it can no longer draw on the reserves of um, habit, I think is probably the best way to put it, in some parts of the country, Scotland... Uh, some parts of the north, uh, for young men particularly to join the armed forces because their fathers did and their brothers did. And that's partly because we live in a time of full employment and that's also partly because the view of the armed forces has changed. Mm -hmm. We don't have... They're not quite part of the community and so on. That's a consequence of professionalisation. And another part of the consequence of professionalisation is that skills demanded are greater. And that means that this year, in the first quarter of this year, the uh, the armed force, the army should have recruited about 2,500 new people. They've managed uh, actually rather about a third of that. Oh. They think they're going to get nowhere near their target. Now, whatever one feels about you know war and this and that and the other, I think most people agree we have to have properly uh, skilled and we have to have the numbers of uh, soldiers that we need to protect the country and also to do some of the civil civil things that uh, that soldiers do. So what the army has now decided to do is to um, lift the requirement for people to have lived here for five years right. uh, in order to join the services. And I think that is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And particularly... You know, in this week, when we remember the sacrifice that was made, not just by people who grew up and joined the army here, but who came from India and other parts of the Commonwealth, it seems to me, in a funny way, rather fitting that we are now opening the doors of our services to people who are come from nations that have always been our friends and cousins. But it's interesting because... Um I mean, Julie, I don't know what you think about this. I mean, first of all, it highlights the acute crisis of funding that we've got um, in in our in our armed service uh, forces, and also this this massive kind of shortage. But there is also the juxtaposition. We've just had um, 
you know, Tommy Robinson being photographed with our armed soldiers, there is often a worry that there is a strain within the army, which is quite hostile to the idea of immigrants sort of coming in and working. How do you you reconcile those two things? Well, there's a, a tradition of many police officers, maybe it's dying out, I hope so, being in the Freemasons and coming from that kind of more right-wing sensibility. Yeah. I think lots of this is about class. Yes. And it's the yes. most under underexplored yeah. oppression, structural oppression I think, although class does shift and it's fluid, but ultimately most working class people stay working class. Um in this country. And I think that with the armed forces it was always an option for working class young people. So I'm 56. When I was about to leave school, realising that there was nothing for me, no, I had no qualifications, nothing, I, um, I I applied to go into the Wrens, as it was then. Oh, right. The Women's oh. Navy. And I was rejected. Can you believe I that? I cannot believe that. I could be sitting here in <laughs> I full would uniform. Sleep, I would sleep easy at night knowing. I could. You know, I would have gone well. I think the outfit, you would have looked really good in the outfit I, as and, well. And a lesbian in, you know, in a uniform always goes down a treat at, at kind of award ceremonies. But then I've, I have two nephews who, who were in the Navy and they left and what they were saying was it's not as it was because I have other family of older generations who were in the armed forces and it was always a recruitment process from comprehensive schools in poor areas because they knew yeah. that there were no jobs. And they were, sort of, point rec- is recruit, right. they were sort of recruiting areas, kind of former industrialised, yeah. de-industrialised well, areas, the North East. Yeah, know. And, and, and I'm from the North East, from a very working class community and Trevor mentions Tommy Robinson, or did, did yeah. you mention Tommy Robinson? and being photographed with the armed forces. And I think, you know, in a way, well, you know, you have lots of people in market towns in the north of England and in the south being photographed with Tommy Robinson. And I think that, you know, an anti-racist solution to this would be to make sure that we don't brutalise people within the armed forces and tell them that they have no option but to put up with this because there's no other job because they're scum, which in turn leads leads them to handily blame other people such yeah. as migrants and people you know from other backgrounds and I think it's fantastic that there's, that we've opened that up now to people from other countries. There's a curious contradiction here of course though that uh, I suspect that some of those guys who lined up with Tommy Robinson if you ask them would always say about let's say the Gurkhas would all say fantastic soldiers love them to pieces. Uh, uh, I mean there, there's always been a curious particularly a working class contradiction about this issue of race um and you will undoubtedly have had the same experience that I've had, which is people say, Lord bloody hell, that lot. Not you, Trevor. You're, you're, you're all right. You're all yeah, right, I get but, that. You know, and they, yeah, and they, invite, and they invite I've you. I've had some classic, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I suspect that the, the whole lining up with Tommy Robinson thing is probably more akin to that. And if you wanted to remedy it, I mean, actually, one of the things I think this will do is that, in truth, most of the time we get to know and we get over our prejudices by experiencing the other thing firsthand. And I suspect and having contact and having contact. Yeah. And I suspect if some of those guys had to be in a foxhole with somebody who's black or Muslim and so on, they might come back from that experience with rather a different view. So at some level, I think this might actually help to remedy that problem. I love it. We're going to have a Benetton army. See, we're being nice. We're being hopeful. We're all being nice. We're being nice. It's made me feel quite warm about the armed forces, actually, (laughs) now that I know that this is what they're going to do. I mean, when my parents first first came here, the way that people integrated was they had to work next to other people in big factories 
and you just had to get on on the production line. Yeah. We don't have that that much, yeah. and that's one of the reasons, actually, that we have a more segregated society. Yeah. Right. Um, so we're now moving on to our heroes and uh, villains of the week. Now, I'm going to start off. My <laughs> my hero of the week, and it will take us into a bigger discussion, has to be... Um, Jim Acosta from CNN. I will declare an interest. I do quite a lot of work uh, with CNN, but he challenged the um, President of the United States, Donald Trump, after the midterms, and Donald Trump reacted in his usual calm way by completely <laughs> going sort of off to the wacky races with him. There was a sort of scene where one of the aides um, came to try and wrestle the microphone um, off him. And I have to say, Jim Acosta really, really stood his ground. He's now had his past taken away from him and it is full-on sort of war the press versus Donald Trump um I mean I think journalists in America are doing a good job in very very difficult times and actually it wasn't just Jim Acosta other journalists kind of backed him up afterwards but it's fascinating I mean what what was your take on the the, the midterms was it what you expected well I think it's what everybody said was going to happen and um I think it the important thing about it is how what we interpret it as it. Can I be objectionable about Jim mm, Acosta and, and all of that? Um, there's a long history between Jim Acosta and Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the president. I mean, they've had spats before. Um, I watched it, and I, I have to say, Trump is a Bulgarian and he's a bore and all of that. But I think the protocol is that you get a question and then you get a follow-up. And Jim Acosta broke that protocol without any, you know, without any shadow of a doubt. Which is why, by the way, other journalists in the room, when he asked his fourth question, were shouting at him, not at Trump. Ooh. So so I think it takes a special skill to make Donald Trump look be in the right when it comes I to manners. I think it takes a special skill. Trevor, it takes a special... You're like Trump all the way. I love it. This is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> You've changed, man. <laughs> no, I, I just think we... No, we, but the thing is, if right... We, if we're going to if we're gonna battle Donald Trump, let's let's make our ground right. Not Let's not just line up with somebody who is rude to him because they've been rude to Donald Trump. But I think it's a question. He just... Ne- he, he never, you know... Um, you know, the, 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 the distortion of facts. And I think the fact that Sarah Huckabee and they're now kind of releasing things that he's manhandled her, which is absolutely yeah, no, no, that's wrong. ridiculous. I mean, look, bearing in mind, this is a guy who's happy to grab women by the, the lady guard and he's suddenly like, oh, you know, <laughs> he's touched her arm in a funny way. Clutch your pearls. Well, there's no lady garden if you've had a full Brazilian, <laughs> is there? <laughs> well, like but, a trimmed head. Julie, what's your take? Obama banned some, somebody in 2009. This is not the first time has happened. I know, but the the level of just you and, know, the, and Blair, the, the, of the the riot, and Blair, the Blair banned plenty from the lobby. My view on it, I suppose, I have. To, I, I agree with Trevor. I think that there is a protocol, and he should have followed it. But he was being shouted at and hissed at, more or less, and eyes rolled at by Trump at the first question. And it was it yeah. was made plain that he was confronting the enemy. I mean, his relationship with the press is absolutely ridiculous. But my, what I was thinking when I was watching it is. You cowards, right? If this was in the UK, and that was the other other journalist, right? Okay, I take Trevor's point about they were shouting at him because they wanted to question themselves. Fair enough, actually, I would have been irritated. But when he was being shouted at by Trump, insulted by him, they should have actually backed him up. I think the next guy did. did. Um, Remember, just for, for context, I mean... 
CNN just had a whole series of pipe bombs and things sent to it. You know, the the, the president sort of congratulated somebody who punched a journalist mm. sort of in the the face. And I just think this sort of all-out war with the press is um, is very dangerous. But I do think it will work for Trump. I think it works for his brand. Totally. Um, right. We're going to now... Uh, Julie, we're going to come on to your hero of the week. Well, mine is a young woman called Sammy Woodhouse who was herself the victim as a child of, and I hate the term grooming gangs, it's a euphemism, of um, violent, dangerous, rapist pimps who target young women, um, not just in in northern um, former mill towns, but like Rotherham, where Sammy's from, but also, you know, elsewhere in the south of England. And Sammy was treated abysmally and appallingly by police. I've written about this issue a number of times, right back from the early 2000s. So I know a lot about this case, and I spoke to the police before this was all exposed in the press, and they more or less talked about these young women as troublesome slags. Oh. And mm. and Sammy had awful treatment when she reported these gang rapists and pimps and just has now decided to take them to task, as she has been for some time. She was helped by a brilliant police officer, uh, Maggie Oliver, who has left the service because of what she saw with policing of these vile crimes. And uh, Sammy is now campaigning against the criminalisation of the victims of abuse because, of course, the police would go in to a pimp's house where they had girls high on cannabis and vodka who might be desperate to get away and scream and shout and the girls were arrested uh, and, and the pimps were left alone. This happened to Sammy. And she... I've just given her a prize, actually. I'm, I'm a trustee of a, a charity, the Emma Humphreys Memorial Prize. And we decided she was our uh, our winner this year because she is campaigning against sexual exploitation in a very public way. She's mm. written a book. And when you think about coming through those experiences and being able to advocate for other young women and to stand up and argue with right in the face of our police service and other law enforcement authorities. She's fabulous. Well, it's, uh, I mean, she's an incredible human being. And I think the, the thing, as more of the, the horror comes out of the, the Rotherham cases and everything else, it's such a damning indictment about how, as a society, we value and treat vulnerable young women mm. from from the state, from the crime agencies, how we turn a blind eye to it. Um, there was a very moving call, actually, on, on LBC a couple of weeks ago of a, a girl who had grown up in Rotherham and had been abused, and she's now older, and she reported back saying men in that town of all races, ages, social stratas abused her and she didn't even realise, and quite a few other women called in, it was okay for a 13-year-old girl to have a boyfriend who was in his early 20s. That was okay. And, of course, it wasn't a boyfriend. She was being used. She was being raped. Um, and, of course, th that the way it's kind of structured is like, that was a consensual relationship. That was absolutely fine. And it has raised, this whole thing has raised some really, I think, profound questions that we have to really dig deep into our souls as a society, as a culture, how we value young women and relationships with young women. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I know a bit about this story, but I don't know about it in detail. Um, I studied from the other end. 
And the thing that I find, I mean, you know, just hearing you talk about it just makes me feel a little bit sick. But the thing that is, in my view, even worse than what we're seeing coming out and worse than the men who've done it is the complicity. Mm. You know, there's a sort of, I, I hope that we do not get out of this series of things with an analysis that says these were terrible men, they were, did terrible things, whether they were whatever background they came from, but actually we've put them in jail and it's all sorted out because actually they would never have been able to do a lot of these things for the right. length of time this went on. I mean, more than a decade right? without complicity. The idea that's being put about that nobody knew mm. is I mean, it's insulting to anybody's intelligence. Everybody and way knew about before, this. The, uh, way longer than a decade. I've never said this publicly before, but I just feel like saying it now. Get it um, out, I actually broke the story of the so-called grooming gangs wow. in the national press. Not Andrew Norfolk. I love him. He's a brilliant journalist. But um, I broke with this story three years before he did. But I'm just a feminist campaigner who'd spent years yeah, talking yeah. to the families. Who are you? <laughs> Published it in the Sunday Times magazine. She would Andrew say went that, on wouldn't she? To, and, you know, Andrew went on to, to publish some great stuff, worked extremely hard, gained the trust of many of the women. But, you know, I, I've, I've been working on this issue since the late 1990s when I met a brilliant organisation called CROP, Campaign for the Removal of Pimping, which is a group of women... Uh, mothers of abused daughters who had noticed a pattern mm. in terms of the gangs of men and how they groomed their daughters and how they alienated them from their friends and their family. Yeah. And the police did nothing. This is from the late 90s when the woman who set it up, Irene Iverson, um, who was campaigning for justice for her daughter who'd been murdered by a pimp age 17 back in the 90s. But, you know, it also gets to the broader... There was a, um issue of just prostitution and pimping in generally because there was um, uh, a, a docudrama on the BBC this week called Doing Money. Yeah, yeah. Which, written by a um, woman uh, I worked with, Gwyneth Hughes. It's a great, yeah. great drama. And I think the thing... And, of, you know, we, we've all worked on policy around this area, all three of us, but I think the thing, the, the most powerful bit of the film is at the end when she has escaped and she's in this shopping mall and she sort of sees these men who have come to visit her from all walks of yeah. life, and this is in Ireland, with their wives, mm. the respectable, you know, th these things are happening. We are all complicit. These things are happening in suburbia all around mm. us. Mm. And we all kind of just collectively sort of choose to just go, well, that's just the way it is. And and it is, it's it's actually a huge stain on our society that this I, is I agree. Okay. And, and, and ignoring, I mean, the worst part of it for me is the reason that a lot of that happens is because people go, I just can't be, I've got so much else to worry about. Right. I just can't be bothered about these. These are, these girls shouldn't get themselves into this yes. situation. Don't worry me with this. I've got important things over yeah. here. That's just the way it is. They, they see the girls as from planet Zog rather than girls that grow into adult women oh, totally. who then are told, it's your choice, you're a sex worker. The worst phrase on the planet, if you ask me. Well, one of the most moving bits of that docudrama was when the one of the guys who she thinks is going to help her escape and doesn't, he says... Um, what, what else are you good for? What else are you good for? And I think that's mm. the psychology. Now, I'm conscious of time, so Trevor, yep. we're going to zoom straight onto your villain of the week. It's a corker. <laughs> there is um, a gentleman uh, who is has uh, he's an actor. He is in his 50s. He has uh, been taken onto a scheme, which is founded by the Arts Council to the tune of 400 grand a year for artistic directors. And it is specifically aimed at people of ethnic minority origin. And he has given himself, an, he has an African name, 
which is a slight problem because he is actually Irish, as were oh. his parents, as were their parents. None of his ancestors, as far as he knows, has left the Emerald Isle at any point. But he has Mediterranean complexion, and he says from time to time in, as a child, he was basically shouted at uh, for being dark. And that has given him the experience of being a black man, and therefore he has the right to be Consider himself a born-again African. Now, this is a this is <laughs> an unbelievable just... <laughs> joke. Uh, but, but, you know, at some level, respect to the guy. I mean, he's seen a chance and he's gone straight up the he's drain He's like pipe. one of those people, like, I've, I'm like the arts counselor. I'm really, I'm Forrest Gump being nice. And he's just yeah, come in and abused it, hasn't he? Well, well, that's the thing that I... Because he didn't say uh, he was white, did he, to the arts council? He didn't say, well, I am white, but I'm... No, no, and he's never, he's never hidden what he is. But the thing I think is most... That the villain here is not him. It is the authorities, starting with the Arts Council, who, frankly, must have known right. this is ridiculous. Did- and they were taking money away from somebody yeah. for whom it was meant, but didn't have the, you know, the intestinal fortitude to go give me a break. Was it right. was it a paper application? The theatre company for which he worked had to. Um, because if they maybe maybe they just saw his name. Well, I think it's unlikely. I mean, the point is he's well known in the industry. Right. It's it's not like he was you know somebody who like suddenly a appeared a nobody. Right. He's well known in the industry, and in fact, in 1990, he appeared in a documentary discussing this question about whether he was black or not black <laughs> with with other actors who were black who were saying. What are I mean, you doing, man? I mean, this story is just so <laughs> nice. It just reminded me of the Ali G, is it? Because I is it's black totally, kind of thing. It's Julie, totally. what's your uh, take on this ridiculous story? I think he's got some neck, as my mother would say. <laughs> and and I do, and I I think that you know identity um, is is fairly fluid, but there are some things that are actually immutable. And for one thing, you know. Your, your birth sex uh, and your race or ethnicity um, are two of them. And I think that, you know, he wasn't doing the usual kind of student snowflake, I identify as a teak cabinet or whatever, a unicorn. He was doing it in order to get grants from the Arts Council. Trevor's right, they should have known better. But why did he give himself that middle name that was African if it wasn't a cynical move to get people to think and assume he was of mixed heritage? I slightly believe well, I just want to say one thing, because this is important for you, Aisha. You and I spent what, best part of a couple of years, two and a half years, getting the Equality Act 2010 through. Probably the most important element and most effective thing that we did in that whole period was to create uh, gender pay transparency, which has, in the last year, transformed what companies do. Now, if you cannot say with certainty who is on this side of the line and who is on that side of the gender line, how do we ever get a reliable number on gender pay. And if we can't, then the advances that we've seen this year, which have been extraordinary, will never, ever occur again. No, I mean, look, look I mean, that is probably... I agree with that's the thing that I'm most proud of, of yeah. the Equality Act. And we have... I mean, we fought. We really yeah. fought to get Nobody that. Nobody wanted to do to get that To get, to get <laughs> those you, clauses Harriet, in. myself... We fought. But, and actually, to be fair, to Jeremy... Haywood was a huge help he to us was, as well, indeed, who, who late passed Jeremy away um, this week. But I think the thing that I find so cynical and so depressing about this story, you know, it is 
an enduring problem with the arts about a lack of, of people of colour mm. and people of colour um, being able to tell their stories, get the funding. Mm. Uh, Lenny Henry this week has just talked about, you know, possible mm. of tax breaks for diversity in the creative industry. And then when you come across who this, somebody give a tax who, break to? Exactly, <laughs> somebody who's using it so... Um, Cynically, it, it you know it makes the do-gooders like me just think, oh maybe you're right, maybe you just give up and just be like. But um, listen, thank you so much uh, to my two guests, uh, Julie and Trevor, for a fascinating and spirited um, discussion. And thanks for listening to the Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika, and I look forward to your company next time. Mm-hmm.